Media. 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 Media Police. A journal of cities and culture. This episode with Dora Appel was recorded live at Anita's Kitchen in Ferndale, Michigan. Hi, this is Brendan Cradell. I'm here with Dora Appel, um, W. Hawkins Ferry Endowed Chair in Modern and Contemporary Art History at Wayne State University, and the author of Beautiful, Terrible Ruins. Uh, we'll be talking about your book today. I'm really excited for this. Thanks for joining me. Uh, and I wanted to begin right at the start with the title, which I think is such an evocative one, uh, and really sets us off into this course that you're charting through the rest of the book, looking at this uh, inherent tension uh, in the dichotomy between the beauty and the terror of ruins, the way that we're drawn to them like a moth to the flame in some way. Um, so I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about how you came to that title uh, and what you see it meaning for the work as a whole. Thanks, Brendan. I wanted to establish a kind of dispassionate position that uh, didn't immediately suggest that I was either um, celebrating or criticizing the, the representation of ruins or the effects of ruins, um, but that uh, you know, didn't deny the, the fascination and the seduction that ruins have for all of us, even if I also wanted to look more critically at the way they're represented and and what the ruins themselves mean. So beautiful and terrible seem to encompass <laughs> the whole spectrum of feelings that we or most of us have about ruins. You know, I think one of the really interesting moves you make at the beginning of the book in framing your argument, it sort of comes off of this idea of, of the uh, attempting to capture some dispassion uh, in the discussion, is that you talk about the, the legacy of fascination with ruins. And I think one of the really interesting things you do is historicize this and locate the impulse in 18th century garden follies and trace this through the 20th century and uh, the idea of ruin lust, Rose Macaulay's uh, concept. And then bringing it up to the modern day, uh, you, you talk about the, the way that ruin porn has entered into the, the vernacular. And yet, pointedly, you don't use terms like ruin lust or ruin porn when describing this, but opt for the more dispassionate, almost clinical ruin imagery. Um, so I wonder if you could keep talking maybe about this idea of dispassion and specifically why frame the argument in these terms of imagery rather than acknowledging the, the sort of ardor for the... Well, I mean, for one thing, I don't think that imagery actually speaks for itself the way people often think it does. And it really depends on how it's contextualized, how it's used, you know, what kind of cultural and symbolic work it's made to do. And that depends on the arena in which it circulates, the discourses that surround it. So it's unfair to freight the imagery itself with a kind of uh, moral weight, you know, in and of itself. Um, and 
part of what was interesting about looking back at the 18th and 19th century um, you know, lust for ruins, if you think about the grand tour that many Brits would go on, um, this was a way of confirming for themselves their own national superiority because the ruins they were looking at were elsewhere, usually Greek and Roman ruins. And that's, I thought it was important to establish the difference between classical ruins and contemporary ruins. Because um, those classical ruins that people would go to view, beautiful as they might be, uh, confirmed for themselves that their civilization was superior, that these civilizations fell. And ruins today, de-industrial ruins, are part of our own empire, as it were. And so you don't get that sense of satisfaction <laughs> from looking at the ruins. And this is one of the reasons why it's terrible. It's frightening and it's horrifying. And so you talk in, in, that, uh, in that chapter about the Grand Tour, about how our notion, the philosophical notion of the sublime as developed by Kant and Burke, sort of can be traced back to this moment in uh, European cultural history. And, uh, and you talk about the Lisbon earthquake as being the sort of instigating event in the uh, notion of uh, uh, philosophizing this um, And then you bring that forward uh, and in your own um, in your work on Detroit, you talk about the deindustrial sublime, which I think is this really wonderful term. Um, so I wonder if you might trace that that intellectual history a bit for the listener and how you see the idea of sublime as being a useful lens to think about deindustrial ruins. The sublime uh, is sometimes confused with the majestic or the beautiful, but. The sublime is actually something that happens inside the human mind. It doesn't reside in nature, but it's a way of mastering the terror of nature um, through the rational mind. Uh, and this is how Kant talks about it. So that mental mastery induces a sense of safety. But that, that can only come about through uh, distance uh, or through time. So in the case of the Lisbon earthquake, which was mid-18th century, um, and which was a horrendous uh, geological event that killed tens of thousands of people and, and was quite terrifying, a lot of people wrote about it. Um, uh, and Kant, in fact, developed his theory of the sublime just a few years after it. And so it was a way of, I mean, you, that was something that people must have felt could have happened to them. Um, but it was a way of distancing themselves from it. If you read about it or see paintings of it, you're distanced both um, through time and through representation itself. Representation is a way of distancing yourself and producing a sense of mental mastery and safety. So in the same way, looking at deindustrial ruins, which in a way are much more anxiety producing because they're right in your own backyard, um, 
and photographing it and looking at photographs of it um, becomes a way of coping with the anxiety that decline produces. This is, this is essentially the, the thesis of the book, mm -hmm. that the, the anxiety of decline uh, produces an enormous appetite for ruin imagery because that ruin imagery becomes a way of um, not only mastering the terror, but also producing a sense of pleasure. We take pleasure in the aestheticizing of the ruins. You talk about how the, the sublime, as initially formulated by Kant, is located in this acute moment the, of the earthquake and how subsequent to that, we've identified these moments of trauma in, in acute instances. So you give 9-11 as a more contemporary example, um, and that the acuteness of those moments allows them to be memorialized, which serves to function as a way for us to sort of frame our understanding of the ruins. Um, and so what is it about deindustrialization, uh, as we see, for instance, here in Detroit, that, that breaks that frame, that the absence of an acute moment of deindustrialization? Because I'm struck, you talk about how, in a sense, the national media discover Detroit's uh, ruins at the, at the Super Bowl in 2006, when everyone comes to Detroit and, and sees firsthand uh, well, that's one of those acute moments, I think, uh, because Detroiters now saw themselves through the eyes of the national media. Um, and that, in turn, I think, is one of the primary um, events that gave rise to the term ruin porn, uh, because there was a sense of embarrassment um, and resentment. Um, you know, at being uh, pitied from a distance, the way that, uh, from a privileged distance, you know, the way that uh, we look at pictures of starving children in Africa. So they didn't want to be seen that way. Uh, at the same time, it meant looking with fresh eyes at your own city, so the things that you've seen for a long time that have become normalized, that you in fact don't see anymore, uh, you see it now again through um, outsiders' eyes, and you see how horrifying it is. And what does it mean, you know, to to raise a family around ruins, uh, around the and the kind of danger that ruins attract and produce? One of the things that I appreciated about the book is. Uh, the insistence on historical specificity and uh, the degree to which this becomes a, a political and a cultural history um, as a way of framing our understanding of the visual culture that you're talking about in the book. And I, I saw echoes of that in your discussion at the beginning, uh, which you just raised yourself of this dichotomy between insider and outsider as it relates to 
the photographers taking the actual pictures of the book depository, I, I think is the example you use. Um, and the wariness that, that you have in describing the relationship of the photographer to the subject um, in terms of uh, exploiting ruins and who is authorized to make these images. Um, and I couldn't help but see echoes of that in your own insistence on the historical specificity, that uh, that, that was a way to um, avoid exploiting the same images that these photographers were exploiting of images, that uh, the insistence on context is a way of um, denying the pure aestheticization of ruin, in a way. Um, so, I guess as a methods question, um, how, how much of that work did you feel compelled to do for the reader, many of whom presumably will be largely unfamiliar with Detroit's history, um, as a way of introducing this discussion of the visual culture of the city? Well, I mean, I, I thought that was fundamental. That was crucial. And, and I was at pains to, uh, I wanted to really try and break down the dichotomy between insider and outsider. Um, because I think they ultimately, as photographers, do very similar things. And that it, it starts to come down to a question of who has the right. Which is never a good question. Everyone has the right to photograph the ruins if they want to, and it's the wrong question. The question is, what do you want those photographs to do? What do you want them to say? What do you want people to learn? Um, and in order to learn from them, you need the political and social, economic, context. Um, and so my, my critique is not exploitation by outsiders versus insiders, but um, what do we, you know, how, how are they used? Are, and I argue that they're used in, in various ways, but um, you know, there's a romanticizing of the ruins that defines it as a struggle between nature and culture. Um, and in some cases, the triumph of nature over culture is seen as a celebration of new life and growth. Um, there are others who see it as a lament uh, and a, a downward spiral uh, that leading to the end times um, so that um, it's a kind of uh, pessimistic nihilism. Um, there are those who see it as a kind of return to a pre-industrial past um, and, you know, an open slate for a new kind of off-the-grid growth, which I think is also romantic. <laughs> Um, and there are some who see it as uh, uh, laying the foundation for a, a critique of the status quo, a critique of a uh, capitalist uh, system that has gotten us where we are. But almost all of the photographs do, 
by their nature, can't deal with the causes of decline. They can't deal with the downward spiral of capitalism and its effects on race and class and culture. And so, the, it, it, if you don't his, embed the imagery in that history, then you you don't you don't really have anything. But uh, except maybe what people call ruin porn. <laughs> one of the key figures in, uh, in your accounting of the history, one of the key figures in the city's history is Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company. Uh, and I think in your description of Ford's legacy, uh, you offer this really uh, provocative thought that uh, the destruction of Detroit is inherent in the project of capitalism. Um, that if you go to the Henry Ford Museum, they'll uh, laud him for paying high wages to his workers. Uh, but that you identify how the, the race to the bottom was inherent in the globalization of labor and the seeking of, of lower wages in global markets. Uh, I, I raised the specter of Ford because, of course, this book was written against the backdrop of the, the city's bankruptcy in, in 2013 and 2014. We're a few years out from that now, and one of the big developments in the last few months here in Detroit is that the Ford Motor Company, of all people, have, have bought uh, what you call the most iconic of Detroit's ruins, Michigan Central Station, with promises to redevelop it and the surrounding Corktown neighborhood and, and build the campus in downtown Detroit, uh, the irony not being lost on any of us. Um, so I'd be curious, as someone who's obviously given quite a bit of thought to uh, the legacy of capitalism's ruins in Detroit, um, what it means for it to be Ford, of all companies, that's moving into Michigan Central Station. I think that the issue for me with Ford buying Michigan Central Station and uh, investing in the idea of driverless cars is, um, is it's a continuation of the legacy of, of all the auto companies, which on the one hand have prevented the um, uh, construction of a mass transit system, and um, on the other hand, have, uh, especially with driverless cars, would be contributing uh, to, um, it just seems like a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> so you would be filling the road with these driverless cars uh, instead of using that money to invest in, in something that would actually benefit people like a regional transportation system. Uh, and there are so many problems with these driverless cars, and it's not going to revive the city. It's another, it, um, it's another aspect of gentrification, you know, of appealing to young white professionals who are moving into the city who might use a service like that and benefit from it. Uh, which leaves the other 95% of the city 
with the same problems of poverty, unemployment, lack of access to health care, education, transportation that we have now, home foreclosures. You know, a common theme in post-industrial urban planning in, of the last 20 years or so is the recurrence of, of the creative class ideology and, uh, and the trumpeting of uh, ideas, especially associated with Richard Florida. You discuss this in the book uh, not very sympathetically, um, and uh, quote from your own colleague, John Patrick Geary, who uh, coins this idea of solutionism, which I really like, this idea that is sort of baked into the, the mythos of the creative class uh, that the technocracy can save the city, that uh, with enough, and this might be an extension of this idea, but uh, if you get enough hardworking people working hard and rowing in the same direction, you can solve systemic problems of poverty and racial inequality. Right, you just need better technology. Um, and, you know, better rulers and yeah. <laughs> faster software. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. Or more craft beers. Um, and, yeah, and I think also I quote Martha Rossler, who uh, satirizes the idea. Um, the, yeah, it just, again, appeals to young, white, primarily single um, professionals who, who, who want those craft beers and the good restaurants and the $600 Shinola watches. Um, I mean, Shinola is a good example of a company that branded itself as a Detroit company, um, but actually it's clock parts are made in Switzerland and, and they sell their products for uh, prices that 95% of Detroit can't afford. Yeah. I, I think what I liked about your discussion there is how you, um, you want to draw a, a distinction that Florida doesn't between artists and creatives. Right. Um, Right. Artists actually are creative <laughs> and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of artists in Detroit who have um, tried to create a sense of community um, through, um, I want to call them public artworks, they're, they're not always publicly funded. Um, uh, or you know, to raise consciousness or, um, you know, make important statements about the city. And I, I, I think of those as kind of exemplary actions, you know, which are important um, models or examples of, you know, how we should raise awareness or, you know, help us see something in a new and different way. But you can't rely on artists any more than you can on creatives to really fundamentally revivify a city or create profound systemic changes. Yeah, I, this sort of gets at the follow-up question that I was going to ask, that, um, that even the most 
generous reading of, of the creative class thesis is, um, is going to argue that artists contribute to the symbolic economy of the city, even if not necessarily uh, the material economy of the city. Yeah. How important is that contribution? Uh, I don't mean to discount the, the, the work that you're referring to here, but it also, from what I'm hearing in other parts of our discussion, you're, you're talking about base infrastructure issues, right? If, if you lose hundreds of thousands of jobs, the solution is finding hundreds of thousands of jobs. Right. But I, I do think that it's important. It contributes, in terms of the symbolic cultural work they do, it contributes to a kind of memory landscape that uh, is important in how we understand the, the moment we're living in, how we understand the past, and therefore how we understand the future. So the, the cultural construction of, of memory and history and understanding, that's really important. What is it about Detroit and not its peer cities that have observed the same process of sustained deindustrialization um, that makes this the place where where artists are drawn. This, you don't hear this story about right. Toledo or Milwaukee uh, or the other cities of the Rust Belt. Yeah, sure. Buffalo. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I think Detroit is important and for a variety of reasons that have kind of converged. It is on, uh, on a fundamental level, we could call it the, um, you know, the cradle of modernism since this is where the, uh, um, the vertical industrial process was invented and the production line. Um, so it, it was seen as a driver of, of modernism and, and therefore also where modernism has died. This is the dark side of modernism, where which believed in progress through technology and rationality. Uh, and, and this is precisely what's caused such pervasive anxiety, um, that progress based on technology and rationality does not seem to be holding anymore. And what people see is instead a progressive decline, a spiral downward, and um, a failure of capitalism to be able to support its populations. That brings me to the question I wanted to close on, which you closed the book with one of the great Coleman Young quotes, uh, which I'll paraphrase here, but uh, something along the lines of Detroit today is your town tomorrow. Do I have that right? Um, Again, this book is uh, a couple years old now, and a thing that you couldn't have known when you were writing it, but that is all too present today, is the rise of the far right in, in the US. And um, so I'm, I'm curious about how you might reinterpret uh, Young's dictum 
today looking at what the lessons of Detroit and its relationship to the rest of the country might hold as lessons for your town tomorrow. I think it's even more true now, uh, if anything, than it was before. I mean, one of the crucial factors here that we haven't talked about yet is race. And another reason why Detroit is, has become this paradigmatic city of decline is because um, it's primarily a, a black city, um, you know, which in itself was produced by a variety of factors um, based on white supremacism. And so we see that there's a, a continuing indifference to the black population um, that, and a support for a tiny um, affluent white population. And that, in a microcosm, is what's happening in the country. Um, so you have an exacerbation of the contradictions of capitalism, a, a, a continuing um, exacerbation of income inequality and social inequality. And all of that has existed in, in Detroit for years, and, um, and we see it now on a national scale, really on a global scale. So the, um, it, it's always more extreme sooner in Detroit, <laughs> but we're starting to see it everywhere. And this has probably, um, and I think this is one of the reasons why Trump has come to power. Because there's a rise of white supremacism in the country. If we were trying to steer towards a optimistic note on which to close, this probably <laughs> wasn't the one. Uh, but I think that's as powerful a note to close on as we're going to get. I mean, I think there's something really useful about this idea of thinking about Detroit as the kind of funhouse mirror in which the most American reflection of America is, uh, is portrayed, and whether that be the arsenal of democracy uh, in, the, in the wartime chest thumping era or uh, the, the post-industrial uh, post anxiety decline. Uh, so I thank you very much. This has been a wonderful talk, and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you, and it's been a pleasure. All right. Before I stop, I'm going to record some room tone for a second so that I can edit this. Okay.